The Obald by Robert McMinn Prologue Safe She had grown up in a safe house, but she wasn't safe now. On the last morning she woke early. The medical team had given her a sleeping pill the night before as a way of ensuring she didn't lie awake all night worrying about what she was about to do. The radio woke her. She always tuned the bedroom clock radio to a music station because she hated waking to bad news. Her station of choice played oldies. On this occasion, some indie rock act of the 1980s. She liked the tune, which she'd never heard before. She thought she might make a note of it, but was in the shower when the German DJ came on to introduce the next record, so she missed the title. After a quick breakfast of toasted brioche and coffee, she walked into work. It was a fine day. She showed her pass to the security guard at the barrier and walked to the two-storey building that housed her core team. She stroked her pass over the chip reader at the entrance and the door clicked open. She found she didn't feel nervous even though she knew what was coming. She'd been telling herself for months, almost a year, that she had nothing to lose and all her affairs were in order. She had long ago lost the fear that had given her the night sweats at the beginning of the project. She checked in with reception and was told to head straight down to the infirmary for a final medical. The doctor was waiting for her, and as soon as she had removed her top coat, she had the blood pressure cuff wrapped around her arm and the electronic thermometer was in her ear. Her temperature and blood pressure were declared normal, noted on a chart, and the doctor then drew a syringe of blood for the purposes of before and after comparison. That's it, said the doctor. You're free to go. Good luck. She walked down the corridor to her boss's office and tapped on the door. Ready? He stood up and followed her to the lifts at the end of the corridor. He looked grim, but had already had the conversation with her the day before about how this was an entirely voluntary mission and that she could withdraw at any time. So he said nothing now. Two others from the team joined them, and the four colleagues descended together to the lower levels, and then took an electric trolley transport to their destination. The nerves started to grow. As the technician showed her several new applications on the phone they were providing, all of which would function with or without a network. The phone was packed with useful facts and information, as well as several get-out-of-jail utilities. When the technician had finished, it was the turn of the office administrator to take her through the paperwork. Passport, identity papers, some cleverly faked banknotes, enough for a few days, and the ownership certificate for two 500-gram gold ingots, worth a total of around 30,000 Swiss francs at her destination. She understood this to be about £10,000, which sounded like it ought to be enough money, but you never knew. Everybody disembarked, and she was handed all that she would carry. They decided not to risk taking a bag, but to place everything about her person, hoping that would give her the best chance of everything arriving safely. She was wearing an ordinary pair of blue jeans, a red t-shirt, boots and a fleece-lined waterproof coat with several reinforced pockets, weighed down with the gold ingots, her phone, and all her identity papers. They ran through a final checklist, 
Then they all shook hands. The rest of the team withdrew behind a safety barrier which had been set at a calculated distance from the node. The machinery hummed and the lights dimmed. Book 1, 1983 Chapter 1, Tuesday, 1st of November At a shade over 1.83 metres in his size 9 Dr Martins, Ronnie Smith was just tall enough to reach up on tiptoes to unclip the faulty fluorescent tube in the small kitchen at the top of the stairs. The flickering had been bothering him for days, and the so-called technicians in common services had so far failed to replace it. The office kitchen was now illuminated by the faded grey daylight from the high window. It would soon be dark. By four o'clock, people would start to complain that they couldn't see to boil a kettle. Common services would be called. Ronnie went back to his desk, throwing the tube into a waste bin on the way. It was November the 1st, 1983, his one-year anniversary, he was officially out of his extended probation period. The small kitchen was at the top of the main staircase in Bruch House, in the section reserved for amenities like lifts, plumbing and entrances. To reach the main part of the office meant crossing a small enclosed bridge, which reminded Ronnie of the ones over the motorway at service stations. Through the double doors, around the filing racks and back to his swivel seat in front of the green-on-green VDU screen in information processing. Studied look of innocence maintained. The fire exit staircase was at the other end of the floor, through a grey, push-to-open door with a lock, but no key. The green fire exit sign appeared to have fallen from the wall above the door some time before Ronnie started this job the previous November. Common services had yet to replace it. If the health and safety people on floor 13 ever found out, there would be trouble, but nobody from floor 13 ever visited floor 4. Ronnie logged into his terminal and while he waited, glanced through the sealed window at the building opposite, which showed no lights. He wondered if she was there. If she was there, wouldn't the lights be on? It was too grey outside and the windows opposite too small for anyone to be working by natural light alone. Other floors in the same building showed lights and Ronnie could see people moving around over there through the small gaps in the window left by piled up files, empty vending cups and cardboard wall planner tubes. What if she was there, sitting in the dark so as to better see across the way at his window? The street below was narrow part of the town's legendary one-way system and frequently blocked by delivery lorries. The buildings were almost close enough to lean over and touch. Ronnie's building had 14 floors, hers had just the five. 
Nobody seemed to know the name of the department in Ronnie's building. Her building, King House, had multiple occupants. He thought she worked for Douglas and Graham, solicitors, but he couldn't be sure. Common services were on the floor below. There were three of them in the team. Mr Nibs, who seemed impossibly ancient, wrinkled, grey, smoky. Norman, middle-aged, mousy, bespectacled, and nominally in charge. And Nick, the young one, drafted in to do the heavy lifting. All three were supposed to eventually come up to help in the postroom first thing in the morning, but usually didn't arrive before eight. Ronnie had started to help Nibs sort the post between 7.15 and 8 in return for a borrow of the newspaper, which Nibs never failed to buy, but never seemed to read. Nibs, always smoking, would often bring the conversation round to his experiences during the war. Not the Falklands War, the 1939-45 war, which he had spent malnourished in forced labour camps somewhere in Southeast Asia. Floor two, one floor down from common services, contained the storeroom, as well as the little-used staff lunchroom. The lunchroom had a water boiler, plumbed in, a sink and a table tennis table. It had been introduced recently as a replacement for the old GPO canteen to which department staff had been allowed to access until recently. The so-called GPO canteen had been housed in the British Telecom building, but dated from the time when the post office had owned it. As the new British Telecom was preparing for privatisation, access to its canteen for the rest of the civil service had been stopped. The Floor 2 lunchroom was a poor substitute and was mainly used for goofing off. There were three table tennis bats and two balls which could be popped back into shape as required by dropping them in the water boiler. Ronnie liked the smell that resulted from that. There were a few comfy chairs, no longer considered presentable enough for reception. Like most of the staff, Ronnie rarely visited the lunchroom, preferring to spend his lunchtimes in the pub below the building, along with the rest of information processing. Today he'd spent about an hour and a half down there, the joys of flexi-time. The pub below was called The Office. It was modern, garishly lit, with chromium on the bar and a jukebox full of recent hits. The Office saw a trendier crowd but received a downtrodden, downbeat collection of disillusioned civil servants, often on their way back from union meetings. The office was stocked with the latest trend in ready-mixed cocktails in little silver bottles. Ronnie was hooked on sundowners, which had a lethal effect on his stomach. The fire escape door squealed as it opened. Most people used the back stairs in preference to the main staircase across the bridge. The back stairs were bare concrete and poorly lit, but it seemed marginally quicker if you went that way. Ronnie's own preference was for the longer route on the main stairs because it meant more time away from his desk. Across the array of filing racks, Ronnie could see Mel walking past on her way to the post room in the corner of floor four. Mel was from floor five, compliance. Ronnie tensed and tried not to show it, They'd been out a few times in the summer to see a couple of films and have a few drinks, but she'd been quite open about having another boyfriend, Paul, who she said worked on the London Underground. Ronnie had seen Paul with her once, from a distance, skinhead, and easily twice his size. 
Since then, he'd been trying to compute Mel's rationale for going out with him, what she was playing at. It was on the first date that she'd told him. The only reason she could do this, she said, was because Paul worked shifts. This week he was on lates, so Mel could see a film with someone else. Ronnie had immediately readjusted his expectations of the evening. This was just two friends, seeing a film together. Nobody really enjoyed going to the cinema on their own, he realised. But then, waiting for her boss on a bench in the town square, she'd kissed him. More dates and more confusion followed. Mel was 17, Ronnie was nearly 21, but he was out of his depth and knew it. Mel walked past again on the way back to the fire stairs. She didn't look over. She had a way of swinging her hips as she walked. Dave Cooper approached. Cocktails after work. Ronnie shook his head. Got a gig on Friday, band practice tonight. Ronnie had been pursuing a career in the music business since leaving school. He played guitar and sang, but he knew he was out of step with the times. The previous year, ABC had been on the jukebox in every bar he frequented. This year it was Culture Club. Guitar music was for chumps. The fashion in music was for synth drums, piercing high-pitched horns or electronic sounds. Ronnie preferred plain vanilla rock music, preferably played by people who knew what they were doing. Still, knowing they were doomed, he and his bandmates went through the motions, rehearsing every Tuesday evening on the shop floor of a factory workshop. Jim, the drummer, was a keyholder, so they were free to borrow the space and electricity for a couple of hours. Ronnie really wasn't clear on how legal their presence in the factory actually was, so he always left his car in the car park of what looked like an empty warehouse next door. Now and then, the band played small pubs and clubs. This Friday, they had a gig at the local bikers' hangout, The Crown. The back room at The Crown held about a hundred and served no less than two different types of beer. Miguel Muniz stalked past, muttering about the broken light in the kitchen. Muniz was one of the floor supervisors, the higher grade, who signed off on all the work and pretended not to be noting down the exact comings and goings of everybody on his side of the building. Muniz was in the territorials and boasted about his supporting role in the Falklands conflict the year before. It had all been over before Ronnie started in the department. As Muniz sat down, Ronnie checked his watch. Quarter to four. He'd never quite got used to the work in life and still found his attention and will to work flagging at the same time each day, the time he used to finish school. Another one of the joys of flexi-time, he usually finished work at four o'clock, cycling home on his rally touring bike, making it back to his pokey flat by half-past most days. He was an early riser, and usually arrived at work with Mr Nibs, who unlocked in the morning at 7.15. He looked across the street again, through his own slightly haunted reflection, still no lights. He'd first noticed her at the beginning of October, the space by the window, previously empty, had been filled by a yellow paper flower and a small vase and the profile of perhaps the most beautiful girl Ronnie had ever seen. He reached onto his top tray for his last file of the day. White. 
Edward J. Retired teacher, 67. Name included on petition signed requesting government inquiry into sinking of General Belgrano, Argentinian Navy cruiser, in May 1982. Ronnie looked through the information in the printout. National insurance number, postcode, shoe size, acronyms listing memberships of RAC, RSPB, N National Trust, NT. He entered the national insurance number on his terminal and hit return. The records returned after a few seconds showed that White had attended an anti-nuclear protest rally in Hyde Park three years before, just after he retired from teaching at a local comprehensive. The name was recorded on another petition more recently, urging the government's public inquiry to find against development of the Sizewell B nuclear reactor. No activity since then. Anti-nuclear protesters always got flagged. It seemed that there was a general suspicion that the whole CND movement had been infiltrated by communists, whose interest in seeing Britain unilaterally disarm was not prompted by a desire for peace. Ronnie added the Belgrano petition to the list of activities recording against White's name. This was the third time he'd come across the Belgrano people this week. Ronnie put the paperwork in his outtray for filing and then carried the contents of the outtray to the filing table. Someone, not him, would put it away in the morning. In spite of the fairly new computer system, there was still a lot of paper and the middle part of each floor was packed with filing racks and shelves, filled with identical blue files carrying the variety of coloured plastic tags known as BF tags. The VDU terminal was a recent addition to the office, but most of the work was still printed out or written down. One of Ronnie's main jobs was to gradually update the centralised computer records with the contents of the paper and cardboard files. It was soul-destroying work, but there was plenty of it. At two minutes past four, he headed for the fire exit and the back stairs, pulling on his army surplus padded jacket against the November wind. He thumped through the rear entrance on the ground floor and fumbled for his bike shed key on his key ring in the fading light. The bike was dry, but he had no lights and sunset was about 30 minutes away. On days when he had had a lunchtime drink, he tended to go a little bit faster, but not today. He pedalled out onto King Street and took one more look up at the dark fourth floor of the building opposite before heading off up the road. In his nightmare, Ronnie often found himself lost on the ring road, not sure of the quickest way out of town, wasting energy looking for the right exit. Rather than cycle against the one-way system, he cut through the alleyway to Bruce Street and then freewheeled down to the junction opposite the new McDonald's restaurant. Home was 25 minutes away. That night at the factory, Sam the bass player had interesting news. He'd inherited a few thousand pounds from his grandmother and wanted to spend it on making a record. We could hire an 8-track, set up in here and record it over a couple of weeks. What do you think? Ronnie shrugged. The band had enough material for an album, but he wasn't seeing any future in it and was made uncomfortable by the idea of Sam wasting his inheritance chasing a dream. They had already recorded some demo tracks on a four-track cassette Porter Studio. 
The four-track had seemed miraculous at first, but the sense of wonder had soon been replaced by a feeling of lust for the next big thing. An eight-track, reel-to-reel machine that used quarter-inch tape. These were impossibly expensive, however, and Ronnie worried about Sam's money. Still, the others were into it. There seemed to be no reason why they couldn't use the free electricity in the factory for another few nights a week. So they agreed, and it was left to Sam and Jim to look into the hire of the tape machine. Ronnie agreed to work out which of his songs they should record and to work out some arrangements. The other guitarist, Steve, said he could borrow his brother's fancy new Yamaha DX7 keyboard. The brother, the boy, wouldn't be welcome as a full-time member of the band, but he did have his uses. While Ronnie secretly hated and feared the whole idea of synthesis, he realised that some up-to-date sounds might give them a chance of getting something played on the local radio station. He drove home that night feeling slightly more hopeful. As he opened the door to his flat, he could hear the phone ringing in the main room. By the time he reached it, it had stopped. Mel? Ronnie looked at the clock. Twelve minutes past eleven. He decided to go to bed. <laughs> 